what I love is getting to work on a really wide variety of projects and getting to have outsized impact on each one of those projects through sort of our unique knowledge of of society, how society is changing, how you measure that change and react to that change through the lens of data science. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Eric Diskant, a founder of Blue Labs, which uses data science to help campaigns, businesses, and the government solve hard problems. Eric got involved early in analytics and democratic politics, working at Catalyst, the DNC, and the Obama campaign, and he now leads the government services side of Blue Labs. If you want to get to know another leader in politics and analytics, please listen. So, my sponsor, then my interview with Eric Diskant of Blue Labs. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. So my name is Eric Diskant. I'm one of the co-founders of Blue Labs. I helped start Blue Labs about, about eight years ago now, where I focus on our civic technology practice. Before that, I worked on the, um, on the Obama 2012 campaign. Um, and my focus there was on sort of taking all of the information that was generated across the campaign and synthesizing it into information that can be used by the, by the team's data scientists um, with a particular focus on, um, on geospatial information and on sort of indications of population dynamics. Um, prior to that, worked at the Democratic Party and have also worked on, um, on global and domestic health programs. Where'd you grow up, Eric? South of Buffalo, about 75 miles, a small town called Olean. A political family? <laughs> um, an activist family. Um, not so much electoral politics, but definitely involved in, you know, in, 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 in local issues. I assume if you, you got into the world of data and maps and, and uh, computers, you probably were showing signs of interest in math and things like that early. Is that true? The town I'm from, it's about um, about 35,000 people. Um, we have a, a small university. We have a Walmart. We have a movie theater. Um, probably about 10 or 15 stoplights. Um, and, you know, when I had a job, I, I got a job at the, at the local web development and web hosting company um, and, you know, and did primarily sort of um, tech support to start with. Over time, sort of my high school job going into my college job, 
was working with an organization that helped rural hospitals retain staff. And many of the problems that we had were around how do you how do you aggregate up um, employee satisfaction data from a whole bunch of different hospitals in order to create a single insight, you know, that you, where where a hospital can you know can, can understand how their employee satisfaction is doing compared to others. Uh, most of what we found was that anything that a hospital can do to make life slightly financially better for their employees, not charging for parking, having on-site daycare, those sorts of things really made a really big difference and you know in in encouraging people to stick around, stay dynamic at work, then went off to college, continued to, you know, to actually do that, you know, do that survey analysis work. Um, and then, you know, joined up with um, with Catalyst for the 2008 campaign shortly after that. And I know you went to Swarthmore. Uh, I note that because it was in my top three choices that I got into. And it seemed like a very intense, small place, very elite place. What was your experience there? Did you make it all the way through? Part of my experience, you know, from 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 the town I was from, was that you know was that working and going to school was you know was a, a super common thing people did, and then you know then I didn't really know what I was doing. I applied to you know to to the to the top U.S. news schools because somebody told me I had a shot. Was like, yep, Swarthmore looks great. Went and joined. Um, planned to work all the way through school. Um, found that it was a um, found found that it wasn't super conducive to that. And stayed there for, for, for two years, learned a ton, made great friends, met my wife, then had an opportunity to join up with the um with 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 the two thousand eight effort and you know and went ahead and did that. And never went back to finish it up? Nope, never did. Any regrets on that? Not particularly. Um it's not necessarily a repeatable path, but it's you know, but it's 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 one that worked for me. Yeah, I mean you end up being founder of a successful company and uh, a pretty impressive career. I've t- had many employees and friends who had similar roads. I'm just curious in your case. My guess was you hadn't based on LinkedIn, you had a shorter number of years than one normally uh, has to finish college, so Either you nailed it in two years or, or you didn't finish. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be pretty impressive. Yes, it would be. So how did you land with Catalyst? Um, so, you know, so what I'll say about Catalyst is that they are one of the best companies, at, you know, at, at identifying technology talent from outside of sort of the usual political circles. As a talented technologist, you can, you know, like like many organizations, but you can apply on their website, have nobody know your name, and have a pretty good shot at landing an interview. Is that what you did? Ultimately, getting a job. Uh, yeah. Was Vijay there running the show at the time, or was he? Uh, yeah. No, yeah. it was it, it, and 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 you know, and and me and Vijay had you know had a had a phone conversation, and it turned out to be that the problem that I was working on at the time around, you know, around identifying factors that retain employees and in aggregating data from multiple survey sources was an exact problem that Catalyst was working on as they were combining data from state parties and to sort of a national polling data set. Um, so, you know, so we had a bit of a conversation about sort of, you know, that, that macro data problem. 
and then you know as 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 a result of you know of of that past experience you know had an opportunity to you know to to join Catalyst and you know really really enjoyed being there for the for the 2008 cycle and a bit beyond that he's uh Vijay Ravindran is a, a neighbor of mine and I've got I got to know him a bit during that 0708 campaign and I mean that that idea of employee retention I think is important to him as a as a supervisor, like he is interested in keeping people around and, and values uh, his staff from what I can tell. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell me a little more about what you learned. I mean, you're a young man then working a real job. What did you learn at that institution? Taking me a minute to go back. It's, it's, it's been a, it's been a few years now. Um, it's antique history, but um, I think that, Political data and campaigns in large, you know, have a have a have a unique culture, have a unique terminology, have a unique approach for combining field organizing with a larger data infrastructure. And that was just really a moment of like me um, just absorbing as much information as I possibly could about how a how a unique culture contributes to a greater good. Um, more specifically, sort of where 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 I found the mer- the most personal satisfaction was in developing person matching algorithms, and developing sort of the idea that you know that 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 Ben Smith and Benjamin Smith are actually you know the same individual, um, provided that a set of other factors also also match. Um, and it was really my first introduction to um, to algorithmic ethics as well. Um, that person matching is an area that having cultural competency as a data scientist causes you to build much, much, much better algorithms just because we have such a varied name culture in America. Um, and we tend to stick to sort of, you know, we tend to build data systems that have first name, middle name, last name. But the reality of America is that name cultures are, mu- are much bigger than that. And if you start to understand that, then you can build algorithms that actually result in, you know, in, in, in better matches, regardless of, you know, of, of, of the cultures of the individual voters. It's an eternal problem in databases that involve people that you have duplicates in there or you aren't sure whether... John Smith and John Smith Jr. at the same house are the same person or many other more complicated things as you've sort of referenced. And the consequences are giant in lots of applications like should this person be kicked off the voter rolls or not happens all the time with bad matching and it's not a perfect science for sure. Why did you leave Catalyst and go on to the the DNC? At the time, um, the Obama campaign used Catalyst as their primary voter file. Um, going into the 2010 effort, the DNC, you know, decided decided to go their own way. Um, and I had an opportunity at that time to join up with the targeting team at, at, at the DNC to help them with, you know, with with their data engineering efforts. Who was running the targeting team back then? Uh, so it was Dan Wagner running the targeting team, and then Chris Wagerson, you know, brought brought me in as an analytics engineer. People who would go on to make some mark in the field, for sure, and partner with you in certain cases. What was that like? What did you learn there? So the 20-ton cycle, we went into it knowing that it would be an incredibly difficult race, and that, you know, and that we weren't going to hold on to our seat. 
if you go back to that moment, um, ACA, the policy that, you know, that I now spend a lot of my time continuing to care and feed was incredibly unpopular in America. And that was compounded by the by sort of the political science truism that you lose that you lose seats during your during an off year with an incumbent president. But we did know that if we appropriately applied resources, we had an opportunity to hang on to some seats that we otherwise might lose. And then also that we had an opportunity to learn what works and what doesn't work from a data science perspective. What I remember, you know, from a from a personal conversation, it actually, you know, reminded me a little bit of my time at Swarthmore when you described sort of, you know, intensity, that it was a moment of just, you know, just a relatively small group of individuals just coming up with ideas, just like, what is it that might be possible that could help us move a few seats and also, you know, two years later, maybe hang on to a presidency? I think two innovations stick out. One of them is predictive modeling at scale and identifying sort of when a model has gone out of date and it's time to refresh the model. So you build a model, you continually pull and keep track of how that model is doing. Then once it reaches a point that it needs to be refreshed, there's approaches around knowing, you know, exactly when it's time, when it's time to do that. Um, and then the other thing that really came out of that race was came out of that 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 period was you know was was persuasion modeling the idea of not just modeling on people's likelihood of voting for a candidate but modeling on a campaign's ability to change that person's opinion. Um, both of those things were things that in the 2010 campaign we did with shoestrings and rubber bands and sort of you know force of our own labor of just powering through, you know, through, through difficult problems with a small team. And it really was a moment of, you know, of each person has a job to do. Each person working there is as busy as the next person. You work until you can't work anymore. You go home, you get up the next day, you do it again. And there's stuff that you haven't gotten done. There always is. So it's, it's not at all a sustainable way of working, but it is a way, it is a moment that a lot of of innovation happens. Going into 2012, there was more work to do because it was a larger race with more things happening and, you know, in a presidential scale budget. Um, Also, there were a lot more people to carry that load. So sure, we all worked really hard, but it wasn't that moment of having to like have quite as intense prioritization and triaging of each individual problem because we did have that, you know, that that bigger team and also all of the systems that we put into place in 2010. My experience is when I've been involved in intense efforts, uh, maybe like that or somewhat different, that it's very bonding with the people that you're kind of shoulder to shoulder with. Was it like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Wegerson, all of the all of the Blue Labs co-founders actually actually met at the 2010 campaign, um, as did you know a, a lot of the early employees, some of whom are you know still at the company today, and a bunch of the 2012 Obama effort, right? Yeah, yeah. Tell me how you land at that presidential effort, and like what was that experience like? Um, so actually, right after the 2010 campaign, um, I had an opportunity to go back to um, to go back to healthcare work 
and I went ahead and did that. Um, so coming out in, in 2011, um, I joined a global development organization called International Medical Corps. The way that they suggested that, you know, that, that, that this, this would be, you know, the, the way that they recruited me really was that the problem that they had was how do you get information from points of service from, you know, effectively, you know, a, a field medical hospital into a country headquarters, um, and, you know, and these are typically facilities that have, you know, that have 10 to 50 employees, 75 beds, sometimes physical buildings, sometimes sort of fairly permanent tent structures, um, paper medical records, usually a few computers. It's different every place, but oftentimes it's, you know, it's a, it's a motorbike that comes by once a day and picks up a USB stack. Um, or, you know, or a patient register that gets physically carried during more dynamic public health events, it's incredibly important to have access to, you know, to, to up-to-date information in sort of a country headquarters level. So my problem there was, you know, was going from very large data, the 2012 campaign to go into very messy data about, you know, sort of individual problems and individual moments in time in a global health setting went ahead and did that for you know for a little bit for a little bit less than a year um did work in um in in haiti drc kenya and then remotely supported the um the the response to the libya civil war at some point you know i was uh I, w- I was sitting under a mosquito net in DRC chatting with, you know, with the folks who, you know, with my old colleagues from 2010 about how things were going at the 2012 campaign, I guess 2011 then, they convinced me to, you know, to, to come back and, and give it another run. Did that very different set of data and problems provide any insight that you could bring back to what you did or did that feel like it was sort of... Uh, a dead end for you analytically. So it was definitely, definitely, definitely not a dead end analytically. Um, what I think that those two fields share is that campaigns have state data directors and state data operations. And those operations are incredibly close to the problems that they're solving. And similarly, sort of international development organizations have really savvy data folks who are really close to the problem, who are solving problems every single day, um, and who are and who are using sort of tools that you know that traditional data science programs tend to look down on. Um, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of Excel. It's solving the problem in front of you with, you know, with, 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 with the tools and the trading that you have available to you. And you always find, you know, like I met one warehouse manager who had like figured out how to fully script out their inventory system. And as a result, you know, get a, get a lot more antibiotics out the door during the, um, during the cholera epidemic and, you know, in Haiti. Um, and, you know, and having that chance to just sort of, you know, sit down next to people who, you know, who are really, really, really close to the problem and also, you know, solving, solving tricky data problems with the tools and the training that they've got really set me up, you know, in the, in the 2012 campaign 
to establish that same network of folks who are out in the states who were, you know, who were who, who were getting it done. Um, and it really, it didn't even feel that different to me. It felt like it was the same, you know, it was the same problem of running a really large scale operation that the actions happening on the ground and how you as headquarters can be additive to that rather than getting in the way of it. To me, there's a lot of times when you're working on a problem that you have data around that you don't have some of the data that you really need or really reflect some of the variables that you'd like to have to have the most leverage. Do you think in democratic politics, in in campaign politics, we are measuring all the things that we need to, or what do you think might be missing if we could have a more expansive set of information? One of the things that we're perpetually missing is that the populations that democratic campaigns really need to engage with are incredibly dynamic populations. They move a lot. Voter files only come out so often. Um, and the pace of that movement is is increasing due to a few sort of unfor- unfortunate circumstances. One of them being that many of our future battlegrounds are the states that will be most impacted by climate change. Another reason is just sort of the the economic forces of gentrification and housing instability um, cause people to move and not always in informal ways that appear on consumer data files. Um, So, you know, so if we were able to, you know, to sort of measure anything, it would be, you know, how do we, where today we sort of look at voter files as being sort of, you know, a, a primary unit of the way that we reach our voters. How do we add some sort of some some degree of confidence around that? How do we say, hey, we know that this is a student house. It may not have the same students next year, but it still is an area that, you know, that it's really important to canvas. Um, or we know that, you know, that this area was unfortunately impacted by a hurricane. How do we know where those populations tended to move to? How do we know that there was a moment that disrupted, you know, this the, the city's area? And, you know, and these are the, this is the area that, you know, that these populations tend to live today. So combining that, you know, that system of record, really, really important individual level information with not necessarily qualitative, but slightly more qualitative units of analysis to reach those populations that, you know, that, that move in slightly more informal ways. I mean, it seems to me also that public opinion is so hard to measure. It's hard to measure for any individual, no matter how long you talk to them, if they're not, if you know, you can't, sometimes you can't reach them. Sometimes they're not honest about their opinions. Sometimes their opinions are complicated. Sometimes they're not very settled, right? When you talk about any particular person and when you go to scale with that, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but it strikes me like there's a lot left on the table that doesn't find its way into a data file that, that you're trying to target off of. And as people's communication becomes more person to person, as a lot of that communication, you know, exists within end-to-end encrypted walled walled gardens, um, from a privacy perspective, it's a great thing. Um, From sort of, you know, from sort of a measurement perspective, um, you know, it it means that, you know, that, that, that some of the things that were, that were certain in the past, we have to 
learn to be really smart around more uncertainty in the future. That must have been a pretty exciting campaign to be part of. I mean, it's a bit of a grind doing a reelect, I assume, but you won it. And from all accounts I hear, it was a pretty well-run, good team generally. What was your experience? So from a technology and data perspective, you get spoiled on a reelect because you don't have a primary. So you have so much longer to build. So from my perspective, you know, I found it just to be really great to take the things that, like I said before, we built with shoestrings and rubber bands in 2010 and then get to say, hey, if we did this just a little bit better, what would we have done? And then you get to actually do that. And that's really great. Um, then also, you know, to to work within a single unified field campaign is also a lot of fun. You get to work with, you know, with all kinds of talented people all throughout, you know, all of the states, but who but who somehow have built, you know, a uh, a unifying staff culture that's really built around the idea that what wins elections is, you know, is volunteers going out to and talking to voters and telling their stories and why the election's important to them. And that 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 seemed to work. And you know, and that was just really exciting to see to know that we're helping identify which doors to go to. But it only works if the conversation that happens at that door is, you know, is is relevant and poignant and specific to, you know, to to that to that voter's needs. So combining that like positive organizational culture that got all the way to, you know, to, to, to a volunteer's, you know, second shift out there in the field, all the way up to, you know, to, to a data campaign that's helping plan out the strategy was just, you know, re- really humbling to be a part of. Is there a particular moment that stands out for you as sort of representative of what went on? Yeah. So we built a tool at the time. You have NGP Van that is, you know, that that's ultimately the CRM of record, and you know, and is effectively at the, at the time producing walk packets, and you know, and then volunteers go through it and knock on all the doors, and you know, and that that that's how the how the campaign works. Um, what we wanted to see is, are there areas that we're that that we're systemically missing, but at an incredibly granular level. So what we tried doing was just taking, with some anonymization, taking every single door and, you know, and and plotting it on a map as a single dot and coloring it by, you know, by, has this door been knocked in the last seven days? And, you know, and generally you see, you know, you see mostly green because the campaign's doing, you know, doing a great job, some reds mixed in because there's always noise. And then you find like a few really small spots that are all red. Um, and I, as you know, as that person in headquarters, you know, don't, don't really know what those are. You don't even see them until you zoom into an individual turf. Then you get someone on the phone who's, you know, who's really close to the operation. And they say, oh, that's a gated community. I'm going to find a volunteer who lives there. Or... That's a neighborhood that not every volunteer is comfortable walking. I'm going to find someone who is, and we're going to get those areas canvassed. Or, you know, or sometimes it's just like that walk packet fell behind the desk. (laughs) Um, We'll reprint it. 
it's that if you can take information that only makes sense when you get down to the organizing level, but then find a way to scale um, the surfacing of inefficiencies or surfacing of problems, then and then make that available to people, you know, all the way at the point that they're able to troubleshoot them, then really good things happen. So for me, you know, I, that was one of those conversations, but, you know, but but finding some information, making it available to people who need it, and then having that conversation with someone where they're like, oh, this all clicks. Here's how we can get from, from 85% to 95% based on a set of information, as you know, is always the most fun for me. You used the term geospatial early on, and, and I think we're often with the walk list, we're referring very explicitly to maps of, of neighborhoods and political geography more generally. I, I've always been fascinated by that and about, by the patterns that you see in the country and how they change over time and the ability for the eye to see patterns that you might not see without displaying things visually like that. In your view, how valuable is that? And are there other kinds of data visualizations applied to politics that you think can can be also valuable? I think that, you know, that ultimately voters are, you know, are bo- both in many cases self-selecting to their environment and are also, you know, influenced by their environment. And as a result of that, you know, geography is an incredibly powerful way of understanding understanding electorates. Um, and I personally find that in my current work and in my electoral work, understanding where those elements are changing and how quickly they're changing can be one of the most important things. So if you look at a map that represents a moment in time, it tells you a lot. If you find a way of looking at a map in a way that allows you to sort of to, to, to cut through time in the simplest way, maybe an automated map, or it could just be, you know, multiple maps shown at, shown at different times, then it lets you see things like, here is a neighborhood that is, that is rapidly gentrifying. That is different from a stable neighborhood in the same city. Or here is an inner ring suburb where the where the population is pretty rapidly changing um or you know or here is you know or or here is it here is a city that was impacted you know by it by an economic shock and here's where the people who live there have tended to move to um and if you start to think of of geography as you know is not just this is how it is and this is how it'll always be but if you start to say this is a neighborhood that has a particular population at this moment in time, but also a lot of people are moving into it and moving out of it, then, you know, then that really changes how you how you interact with that community and how you ultimately sort of run effective campaigns. I think that probably carries forward to, you know, to, to, to other ways of looking at data as well, that ultimately when we're attempting to persuade people, it is best to persuade them at a moment that, you know, that they're already making a decision. Um, Oftentimes people make decisions during, you know, during moments of change in their life. 
I don't know the data on this. I'll hypothesize it is a lot easier to persuade a voter who recently moved into a congressional district and is learning about the candidates than, you know, than someone who's, who's, who's lived there for 20 years. So if you start to look at, you know, at, at, at populations as dynamic across a pretty wide variety of, 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 of variables, then you start to see, you know, to see how it is that, you know, that, that, that you can engage with people at those moments in, li- in, in their lives that they're changing. And then anything you can do with data visualization to, you know, to highlight those changes, not just at an individual, but also at a community level. My sense of people who study sort of political realignment, there used to be sort of uh, the idea that like big realigning elections changed large populations, people moved kind of in mass, but that when people have really looked at the very details of that, they see that realignment is constant and happening in a highly complicated way all the time, everywhere. And I guess that makes sense because you you know that people in your family are changing their opinions and moving one way or another. And, and sometimes a, a whole neighborhood will kind of swing, uh, surprisingly, from one place to another. Do campaigns on a presidential level have a sense of that or are they... Or are they kind of more in the moment, just dealing with data. How much when you're in these shoes, are you thinking about the sweep of history and the, the minutia of, of the moment? I think that we're typically looking at it at individual level and how those individuals, you know, aggregate up to, you know, to, to, to an electorate. Um, and there's definitely moments in time when you see, you know, when you see pretty significant shifts within, you know, with, with, within a single election, definitely 2010 comes to mind where, you know, where I was talking about, you know, how do we, when is it time to refresh a model? And really, you know, that's shortcut for, you know, for, for when have the dynamics of the race changed enough that we need to relook at, you know, at, 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 at who our, at who our supporters are. Um, and, you know, and then, where I think it's really interesting is that people don't make decisions in vacuums. They make decisions based on exposure to information. And if you start to understand those information flows and how it is that, you know, that, that, that people, that people consume information, then, you know, then, then those shifts become a little bit less surprising. And I think campaigns have gotten, you know, increasingly sophisticated at, you know, at doing exactly that. One of the strongest indicators of persuadability um, is oftentimes indication of conflicting information within a single individual. So one example could be, you know, could be somebody who lives in a mixed party household or somebody who lives in a neighborhood that is mixed party or somebody that, you know, that engages in, you know, in in media that, you know, that, that may not match the way that they've answered polling questions. So sort of anything that gets to, you know, that sort of that sort of idea that, you know, that that people receiving conflicting information, one more piece of information can, you know, can can help to, you know, encourage that person to, you know, to, to make a positive decision. That changes very much over time as the environment changes, just what information it is that people receive, how they receive information. And as I mentioned, some of that is becoming is becoming harder to harder to um to measure over time as you know as those sorts of voter to voter conversations move into you know 
things like WhatsApp groups and other, you know, and, and other areas that are a little bit harder to know about as a national campaign. What's your version of the founding story for Blue Labs and how different consulting groups come out of that campaign? We found a group of humans who worked who worked really well together um, and could solve big problems together. Um, and also that um, that within the data science world, you can ask like three or four data scientists what 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 data science is, and you get you know eight or ten answers. I knew that I wanted to have a really tight definition for what problems it is that we wanted to solve with the skills that we had, and sort of the best thing that you know that I that I could personally come up with is that when 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 you're a political campaign at a national scale you have 100 million conversations with voters. Um, And as I mentioned before, those conversations are really personal, really specific, really engaging for, you know, for for each voter. And campaigns are incredibly good at hanging on to the data. The problem is that elections are rare events. They happen every two years. So then you kind of put it all back in the box. And, you know, and two years later, you sort of pull it back out and you figure out, you know, where are our voters now? Metaphorically, where are our voters also, you know, physically, like where have they gone? I wanted to find some other industries that have similar problems. Um, one of those is the movie industry where we do pretty significant work because you have a franchise release about every year and you want to know, you know, how do I get the people who watched the last Avengers movie to watch this one? Um, the other area that, you know, that that happens a lot is within the government space, where there's a ton of government programs that people interact with about every year. And it is the same problem of how do we encourage people to, you know, to to take positive informed actions when, you know, when it's not something that they do every single day. So that was kind of, you know, what, what starting Blue Labs for me was, is, you know, is how do we take a really, really great team that is really talented and not try to do everything for everyone, try to really sort of build on our team's strengths, which is sort of encouraging positive actions at scale um, within those types of entities that, you know, that the actions that we're encouraging don't occur every day for every consumer that we're interacting with. So tell me more about like, how you go about starting a business around that, because that's a bit of a, a stretch to, to have the idea that these are valuable skills that could apply to different industries, like you say, to actually incorporate land clients, perform services, charge for it, and all those things that are part and parcel of, of a new enterprise. There's all those operations things. There is, you know, there is sort of the particularly with a bootstrapped startup that, you know, that is, that, that, you know, that starts with 10 or 15 people that has the pressure to, you know, to, 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 to go ahead and, you know, and, and, and start quickly. There's all of those pressures. But I think that ultimately the biggest thing with a new enterprise is to, is to set an employee culture really, really, really quickly because that's the thing that, you know, that, that it's really difficult to change later. 
the employee culture that you know that that we built at, at Blue Labs um, is that you know that like we're all remote today, um, but you know, but I'm 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 wearing a t-shirt. If you join, you know, if you join team meetings, you know, you'll find that you know that folks are folks are pretty casual. Folks have folks have you know like silly and jokes about the project they're working on, or you know, or the, or a fun fact of one of the staffers, or. Or, you know, or like somebody's favorite WNBA team. Um, people have that, you know, that informal rapport of working together with, you know, with with people that they're very comfortable sharing their entire selves with. In your mind, is that drawing from sort of campaign political culture? Or is that something or is it really tech tech side of campaign political? I mean, where was the source of that? And did you all agree on that? Did you talk about it? Uh, we definitely talked about it, and I think you know it's it's hard to like figure out what came first. Um, so you know, so I, I I'm not sure that I'll try, but you know, but I think that you know, I think that you would find you know a lot of a lot of par- parallels in you know in, in both cultures, um, where our culture diverges very significantly from tech culture, is that um, the programs that we work on whether it's campaigns or government or our other clients, um, we're playing a strategic role in an existing program, and it is possible to make it worse. I can't think of a time that we have made it worse, but we're joining an, ex- an existing thing and changing it and making it better. Um, and our first responsibility is not to break it. Um, and... Also, we're joining programs that were designed by people who were smart people, and we're inserting data into that conversation. But, you know, but to take a longstanding system such as the Medicare program that's been around for, you know, for 50 plus years and improve on the ways that Medicare engages with consumers means that you have to make it better. And that's really hard. Um, And it requires being really careful about how you make decisions and making incision decisions very intentionally with the right people in the room and being willing to say, you know what, we're talking about outreach to a community that, you know, that nobody in this room shares that experience. Let's, let's pull some different people in and let's reconvene tomorrow. Um, so I think that sort of if you, if you described our culture, you know, as close as, 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 as well as you could, it would be being very unserious in our interaction with each other and being very serious about how we make decisions around the work such that, you know, such that we build an inclusive culture where lived experiences are always part of the decisions that we make. And that takes intentionality. It takes intentionality in hiring and how we structure meetings and how we structure decisions in how we definitely do not move fast and break things. We have to make sure that the first thing we do is not break it. And then the second thing that we do is, you know, is be really intentional about how we decide how to make it better. Um, And I think that that was the project level decision making framework was probably sort of, you know, the first the first culture thing to work on within a new and young company and one that, you know, that I'm that that has has continued forward to today. What was your role at the start and how has that changed over time? 
when you're a 10 person company, you know, everybody, everybody does a little bit of something in earlier iterations of companies. You know, I, I leaned in on the, um, on the operations side of the company a lot. I bought our office chairs at, you know, at a, at an office moving auction and, you know, and was loading them into, was loading them into a U-Haul with a couple of folks. Um, and, you know, and also, you know, really, really leaned into, you know, to making sure that our employee experience was, you know, was, was the one that was right for, you know, for, um, for fostering sort of a, a, a positive, inclusive culture. Um, since then, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to, you know, to, to pass off, you know, many of those operations things onto, you know, onto folks who, you know, who, who, who do that for a living and have, you know, have much, much longer careers than I did in that. And I get, I, now I focus, you know, mostly on sort of the, the strategy of our client work and on sort of, you know, and on sort of the, the specifics of, you know, of helping our clients run these really large programs at scale and coaching our teams towards doing the same. Did you get involved in the 2016 presidential? So I personally was not involved in the 2016 presidential. Um, obviously, you know, as a, as, as, as a Blue Labs partner, I had, you know, I had, I had some visibility into, you know, in, into our involvement. Um, my personal role was, you know, was, was, was really supporting, you know, our work on healthcare.gov around that same time. Um, as you may know, healthcare.gov has an open enrollment period that runs from, you know, from, from, from November 15th until, you know, until, um, and until until January fifteenth, and that falls right in the election period. So I typically have to, you know, have have to choose one or the other. I learned from your partner Chris that you guys, you know, grew quite a bit from fifteen people or so that you've referenced to, I don't know, over 75, 80 people now. Not many people start a company that that meets with that kind of success. That that over time navigates all of the challenges that any company has and continues afloat is is remarkable and growth is is great and you know you guys have done very well what have you learned that you could relay to other people who would love to found a company in the political space say or in the data science space you want to keep the things that work and also scale um and a lot of that is you know a lot of that is culture. A lot of that is, you know, is sort of is sort of passion, is nimbleness. A ten-person company is amazing because everybody who works there has a bonding moment. Oftentimes, become really close personal friends with each other, develop immediate rapport and trust, and you can like move really fast. But the problem with a ten-person company is that there's not a complete set of skills to solve a very large number of problems. At some point along the way, you're going to say, even if eight of you are data scientists, there's going to be some statistical approach that none of those eight data scientists have been exposed to because we all only have, you know, have limited experience. So then once you grow to like 30 or 40 people, then you start to have like a really complete set of experiences within a domain where it's like, hey, there's a few people here who have 
coincidentally worked at the Fed and know about economic data. There's, you know, there's a few people here who know about natural language processing. There's a few people here who, who know about sort of, you know, each of the things within the broader space that we work within. And also what's amazing about a 40-person company is that it's small enough that you actually know when somebody knows that. So everybody there knows what everybody else has done and what their expertise is. So that's amazing because you have this group of humans that can solve complex problems across a pretty wide variety of disciplines just because you can have a lot of disciplines within, you know, with, within, within 40 people. Now we've reached a size where not everybody knows everybody. And that's perfectly okay. We're a little bit too big for that. There's lots of cases that, you know, that there is experience within the company that, you know, that one analyst may accidentally reinvent just because they haven't happened to have an informal conversation with another person. So now we're at this point where sort of much, much more intentional learning and collaboration has to happen because, you know, because we want to build on the strengths of the entire company with the reality that not everybody can know everybody at this size. So what I find most interesting is, you know, is at each of those inflection points of growth, it's, you know, it's how do you be really intentional about not hanging on to what worked when you were smaller, because some things just don't work. But at the same time, also hanging on to, you know, a, a set of values and a set of culture and a set of sort of, you know, shared purpose that tends to begin within, you know, within smaller companies and can, and can be sustained with intention. I always try to be aware of what is the current barrier to growth. So, you know, so what do we need to do in order to, you know, in order to get to the next size? And then simultaneously, once that happens, what do we need to change? What is it that is working today, but there's a certain point at which it will not work? And how do we plan for that so that when we had it, we, we, we were ready? Probably a lot more valuable than an MBA uh, in learning how to grow a company is to be in one and try to run it. I mean, it's for me, it's it's a continually interesting experience. Like it's an organism that you've created that you have to feed and point in the right direction. Around the 10th anniversary of my company, I put together a chart of milestones uh, in the growth of that company and who, when we picked up certain clients, when we hired each of our employees, different events in the company's history. What would be the key milestones for Blue Labs as you see them from the start to now? You put together a, a a time plot, I'm guessing. Honestly, like, I totally hear you that it, it, it's helpful to, you know, to, to, to look back on those milestones. Um, for me personally, it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's felt much more organic than that. Like, it's hard to look back at a particular moment and say, you know, say, hey, this was actually an inflection point. So the closest to those I have, you know, is is each of those points where we needed to, you know, to, to really closely look at structure and how we work together based on what works at different sizes of a um, of a company. Um, obviously, you know, within the government contracting space where I do most of my work, 
Um, you know, it is it is typically based on contract awards and on being asked to take on, you know, additional work. Um, but even within that, some of the greatest innovations have come, you know, within in the middle of projects. What are some of the government contracts that you've landed that you're very proud of and you think you've done a good job on? Our largest and most longstanding project is, you know, is, is, is our work with healthcare.gov. We've been working on it now for about eight years. Um, and the easiest way to think about it is if you're a consumer at Amazon.gov and you leave a book in your shopping cart, you get a series of emails reminding you to, to finish the process. We provide a similar function for, for, for healthcare.gov. Um, and if you're a consumer who's enrolling at, you know, at, at the marketplace, um, and you're, and you're, you're a little bit fast, but also a little bit careful, it takes you about, you know, half an hour to enroll from the point you go to the website, um, create an account, verify your identity, complete the application, then, you know, then ultimately choose an insurance plan. Um, hypothetically speaking, let's say half of people who enroll, enroll all in one session and they, they do it exactly like that. Can I just ask one clarifying question? So I'm on DC HealthLink and I, both my small company and, uh, my family buy through that exchange. Is that wholly separate from healthcare.gov or is that part of healthcare.gov? I don't even know that. So, so DC HealthLink is a state-based exchange. Um, the way that ACA is designed is that states have the option to create their own health insurance exchange, DC HealthLink being one of them. And then when states do not create a state-based exchange, then individuals who live in that state enroll via the federal exchange or healthcare.gov. What percentage of the states are on healthcare.gov then? Probably, um, I can actually just check. Um so 27 states are in the um, are in the federal exchange. Do, do they tend to be red states? They do tend to be. They do tend to be to be Republican controlled states, um, which just comes from that typically the blue states elected to build their own exchanges. Okay. So that seems like, I mean, an eight year ongoing contract seems like a pretty stable business situation. Is it still exciting? Is it still like growing and changing? So what is interesting about any sort of a web property is that number one, the site hasn't stayed the same. The site has been continually improved and, you know, and sort of, you know, every day we're, you know, adding that the, every day the team's, you know, adding, adding new features to it, improving it, making it, making it even easier for, for consumers to use. Um, following the trend of the the visual language of you know of, of online sites, so first of all, nothing that's on the internet can remain static. Um, if you don't improve it, then you know then then it then it then it'll lose relevance over time. And you know, and, and our partners who 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 build the site have been really good at doing exactly that. Um, the second thing is that even if it doesn't change. The people who use it do change. How they use it changes. Understanding that change allows you to be so much more responsive to to their needs and how they wish to be communicated with. So what we've particularly seen, unfortunately, over the course of the pandemic, 
a lot of individuals, you know, lost employment or their income pretty significantly changed. And healthcare.gov has been a really good option for people to gain access to affordable coverage. So a lot of, you know, our time in the last, you know, in the last 18 months has been about letting folks know that, you know, that that healthcare.gov is available as an option to them, that in many cases, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly affordable. Um, and that it provides, you know, really great care and is relatively easy to use. And getting a message out about a brand that's existed for a long time, but for whom it's all of a sudden relevant to a whole bunch more people, that's always a tricky problem. And it's always an interesting problem. If we sort of, you know, went back in time and looked at, you know, each 18 month, you know, sort of time within healthcare.gov, they wouldn't be as big as shifts as the pandemic has been, but, you know, but we would have seen sort of similar, you know, interesting problems for the team to tackle and keep track of. To what extent is Blue Lab still in the political campaign space? We have a, a pretty wide variety of, you know, of, of, of campaign clients. Um, and I think you'll find that, you know, that that's just sort of based on, based on the Washington, D.C. location, it's actually more common than you'd think for organizations to do, you know, to do both of those things, um, just based on, you know, the fact that the skills are incredibly similar, the needs incredibly similar, the idea of, you know, of how do we encourage individuals to take positive actions that, you know, that improve society, that improve their own security, Um, it's a tricky problem. It's one that the DC community has gotten, you know, particularly adapted addressing and, you know, and it's one that, you know, that, that, that both campaigns and government, you know, need a lot of. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing you as a company right now? I continue to say that recruitment is, you know, is, is always the hardest thing. Of staff. Yeah. Of staff. We do work that's, you know, that's, that's really, that's, you know, that, that's really interesting, really engaging, you know, very societally relevant. Also, you know, we recruit from a pool of individuals who, you know, who have, who have a ton of career options um, and, you know, and making that case for, you know, for, 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 for why to choose Blue Labs as this, as this, as the place to spend, you know, a lot of your time is, you know, is the thing that, you know, that, I take incredibly seriously that I spend, you know, a lot of my time on that ultimately sort of, you know, sometimes I say, you know, we're uh, <laughs> our primary business is hiring. Um, and then, you know, and then everything else comes together when, you know, when we have, you know, the right individuals and, and diverse individuals in the room. I can imagine that's true. If you're really selling expertise, you need to have the expertise. There's a lot of ways that business owners configure incentives internally to retain people and to attract people that that range from ownership in the enterprise to uh, incentive compensation to a good culture to different kinds of perks you know to the mission things like that what do you think of those are good fits for you and, and how do you think about that kind of package i think it's important to offer to offer competitive pay a lot of the reason for that is that 
even though you know technology offers you know offers offers great pay even poor pay and technology is you know is is, is still pretty good um that you know that not everybody has a life situation where you know where they can sort of afford to take less than their market right um and particularly you know some of those life experiences around supporting extended family around you know around supporting sort of a community around you know around around a middle class salary is something that you know is a is part of the american experience and you know and and it's you know and we want to make sure that we're recruiting people who you know who who share you know a broad range of experiences within with within america but another area is that um we have a small company culture, uh, as, as I've described before, but then the, the impact that we get to have is sort of big company impact that, you know, that our, our clients interact with tens and hundreds of millions of people. We get to work on programs that have that scale. We get to work on data sizes that have that scale. We get to sort of, you know, read the news that says that 2.8 million people enrolled during the um, during dur- during the last year, and you know, and we get to know that you know that that we were a part of that in a way that uh, not every small business gets to see that like large scale relevance within the work that they do. However, we also you know get to sort of get to have that small company camaraderie. Um, so, you know, so that combination, you know, it's a, it's a lot of, you know, what, what keeps me super excited about, you know, about, about being here and continuing to grow Blue Labs. And I think that, you know, that it's also something that a lot of our employees take satisfaction from. Are you still a data scientist or have you moved into management? Oh, if you, it gets back to that. If you ask, you know, three data scientists, what data science is, you get a lot more answers. I stopped being a programmer, for example, you know, over time. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm squarely into management. Um, yeah, that happens. Is Blue Lab still independent or was it acquired or uh, partially acquired? Uh, no, we're still independent. Raised money recently? No. No. We're fully bootstrapped. Is that something that you considered... I mean, I, I, I just read that Civis uh, raised another round of capital. They've run a different play than you guys from the get-go, been funded to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I don't know what it all adds up to now. Um, how do you look at that different way of of building an enterprise? So, so I think that the... Um the software as a service business model and, you know, in the consulting business model are, you know, are, are pretty different um, within the consulting business model. What I love is getting to work on a really wide variety of projects and getting to have outsized impact on each one of those projects through sort of our unique knowledge of of society, how society is changing, how you measure that change and react to that change through the lens of data science. Um, doing a software as a service company, the problems are a little bit more abstract. The problems are a little bit more, you know, providing tools to people like me who do that work. 
And then, you know, and then the business model, you know, is fundamentally different that, you know, that within a consultancy, you know, you, 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 um, you know, you, you're ultimately, you know, you're funded based on, based on your project work, you bring in more project work, you hire more people that the need to raise money isn't as, isn't as clear. Whereas, you know, whereas building a product, you have to, you know, you have to, you have to make investments up front. You know, I'm obviously aware of sort of, you know, the, the, the different models that are out there, but, you know, but don't specifically sort of measure us against a different model having started one of each myself i have some sense of the the challenges of of both of them have you ever thought about switching or adding a product to the mix of what you do it seems like it would you know it might strengthen the offering or or change the economics of the business quite a bit um, so there are definitely cases that we've invested in R&D um, in order to make our services more turnkey, to increase the value of our consulting, also to decrease the time from beginning of engagement until, until an insight. That it is really important that when somebody hires us, we're not spinning our wheels for six months getting, getting set up with the data. And that requires upfront investment, and that requires being really smart about how we spend bench time. Um, then in addition to that, we've also put pretty significant investment towards identifying opportunities for, um, for, 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 um, for advocacy campaigns to better get their policy messages out there. Again, because that's a problem that many of our clients share. Many of our clients invest dollars in running programs. Also, the federal government does great work improving the lives of Americans. So we have clients who are directly improving the lives of Americans. Then we have clients who, you know, who are saying, hey, if we can encourage policies that have the same outcomes as the work that we do on the ground, then that's really good ROI for us. And, you know, and it helps us, you know, it helps us tell our story and scale that story beyond ourselves. And because so many of our clients have that public policy need and public policy goals, um, you know, we've looked at how, you know, how as an organization we can, we can support that beyond individual engagement. Um, And really, you know, that's about, you know, how do those organizations with really great stories get those stories in front of policy influencers and how do we like slightly increase the definition of who a policy influencer is to be those you know those grassroots advocates where like you know like I kind of like you 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 started out you know where I uh, where, where where I grew up and you know and, and and I kind of think of my mom as one of those folks who like doesn't have a fancy job doesn't you know has a has, and but you know but is constantly quoted in the local newspaper about whatever it is that's going on. She's the one who shows up at every single public town hall meeting. Um, And how is it that you identify folks like that who really do have, have a sort of significant grassroots influence and then reach those folks at scale in order to amplify public policy messages? That was something that none of our clients like that's something that you know that 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 works more as a product than as a than as an individual service and that you know that we're we're seeing pretty good success with 
and is also bite-sized for a consultancy is also something that you know that 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 makes sense within our within our existing model. You've kind of had a career now at the underpinnings of politics and government, the the infrastructure of it. But I feel like we don't ask people like you enough, like what do you think about the big political challenges of the day? I mean, we are facing with the Republican Party, with Trump trying to come back, something unique to politics in this country. Do you have any thoughts about like that big picture about the politics of our time? Coming out of a pandemic um, and coming into a moment where so many Americans are hanging on to stability, really struggling to ensure sort of safety and health and a secure future for themselves. Um, One of the things that I find really interesting is what is it that government can do best as, you know, as an institution to, you know, to, to support folks. One of the challenges, as you look at the programs that, you know, that, that, that federal government runs, Medicare is, you know, is, is one of the largest healthcare.gov also used by, by tens of millions of Americans. Um, Seniors primarily um, live in, live in Gulf Coast states. Um, or, you know, our seniors disproportionately live in Gulf Coast states, I should say. Um, also, unfortunately, this latest generation of seniors has a bit less savings than, you know, than, 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 than those in the past have. As those folks begin to be, um, be, be influenced by climate change, as those folks, you know, sort of struggle with, with, with housing instability, um, how is it that the government rises to the occasion of truly supporting people who who, who need it the most um, when those populations will be will be more mobile, um, will be more savvy using digital devices, um, will be more comfortable using using telemedicine? How is it that you know that we build programs that are really responsive? Number one, because it's a duty for government to do so. Number two, because increasing confidence in government is really important for the continued stability of the political system. Um, Where I think that we run into trouble is when we add sort of unneeded complexity to, to sort of program eligibility. One tiny example of that is, you know, is like you have you have programs that are income based makes total sense. That's sort of, you know, one of the premises of, you know, of, of government. Having programs that are that are income based is one thing. Having programs based on how much money you have in the bank is much more onerous because documenting your assets is a lot harder than documenting your income. And more intrusive, yeah. Yeah, much more intrusive and also just like much more difficult. Um, and and when we design policies, we don't always think about how easy they are to implement. At the moment, it's so easy to say, hey, we can get this passed if we have this additional provision, then it doesn't you know, decrease the total number of eligible people by that much. But then it turns out to make it 100 times harder to sign up. Um, so what I'm really excited to see is more human-centered design folks, more folks with a, with a 
large-scale program implementation background, starting to get involved in policy development so that the programs from the get-go are, you know, are designed in a way that are that it's really easy to sign up, really easy to take advantage of, really easy to remain engaged with and tell great stories about how well they work. One of the areas that that's most successful right now is is states implementing paid parental leave programs that we're seeing, you know, DC, Massachusetts, other states with paid parental leave and the way that those programs were designed, they were typically designed with implementation in mind in a way that it becomes really streamlined to sign up and ultimately use and benefit from those programs. That seems like that adds a perspective to like mansion demanding that we means test different programs in the in the reconciliation bill. He's probably not thinking in that way. And a lot of people are also, when they're designing government programs, they're working to make sure they don't get taken advantage of as much as some people would like. Anyway, it has been a great honor to talk to you. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? Can't think of anything. Well, thank you for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? Um, Thanks so much for for taking the time as well. Really good getting to know you a little bit. Likewise. I've seen your name for a long time and Good to see your face and, and have a chance to talk with you about some important things. That was Eric Diskant. Eric is at bluelabs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with a Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.